Every successful business, big or small, depends on the skills and motivation of their workforce. And in today's highly competitive world of business, every employee counts. And that's why we're here to help you find better. Welcome to the Monster Hiring Podcast, featuring expert advice on how to hire, lead, and motivate your workforce and keep yourself motivated. I'm Connie Blazik, editor of the Monster Resource Center. Thank you for tuning in. I invite you to visit our library of resources at hiring.monster.com. In this Monster podcast, we delve into the finer details of workplace culture and how you can create a culture that unlocks the innate desires of your workforce to innovate, experiment, and adapt. Stay tuned. Many companies attempt to improve employee motivation through their company culture, but without a deep understanding of how culture drives performance, the end result is often a mix of good, bad, and even ugly business practices. In their new book, Prime to Perform, authors Neil Doshi and Lindsay McGregor explain the data and science behind employee motivation and performance based on their analysis of thousands of studies of human behavior. The book is published by Harper Business. And here with me to disseminate some of the book's findings is Lindsay McGregor. Lindsay has led numerous projects at McKinsey & Company, working with Fortune 500 companies, as well as with school systems and nonprofits. Lindsay, thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure to be here. I think the book's premise is that a company culture can be transformed with some knowledge of science and tools. And to that end, you've created what you call the ultimate culture building tool to measure the strength of your company culture. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes. Until now, culture felt like this sort of magic that only a few very gifted leaders had the ability to practice. But once we began to experiment with different theories of culture, we found that great cultures could actually be measured, and they worked in a predictable way. And it was so predictive that you could start building your culture like an engineer would on purpose to inspire the highest levels of performance and the highest levels of happiness on your team. There, it turns out that there was no trade-off between a high-performing company and happy employees. So, for example, we were able to take call center agents, which is a very difficult job to be on the phone all day, who worked in a huge football field-sized building full of cubicles and said that if we would change their culture, they could outperform the others. And the leader of this call center gave us some of the least experienced folks in the building. One guy, when he introduced himself to the rest of the team, told us that until the day before, he had been the security guard of the building. Hmm. So we took this Bad News Bears uh, team, and through changing the culture, Six months later, this group was beating the rest of the call center by 200%. That's a huge difference through culture that we had built on purpose, not because any of us were born as naturally gifted leaders, but because we were applying the science in a really thoughtful way. Hmm. Well, was part of that condition, you talked about these people were set in a large sort of room, football stadium size, whatever. Was that part of the issue? A lot of the issue was that the team was not structured in a way where they could find play in their work, which is when you enjoy doing the work itself. Um, they couldn't see the impact of their work. They couldn't really see their purpose. And they didn't see any potential in their work, no stepping stones for them. 
And so we really transformed the way we worked where before they had been sort of cogs in an assembly line, and we turned them into true owners of their customer, where they each had a particular set of customers that they helped um, in a particular, where they could experiment with the most helpful ways of helping those customers. It really transformed their mentality from do what I'm told to actually do what's right for the customer. Mm-hmm. So it's not so much that people need to find work they love, but they need to find meaning in the work that they're doing. There's a lot of talk right now about finding meaning and purpose in the work that you're doing, which is critically important. But it turns out that purpose is about half as powerful as what we call play, which is when you actually enjoy the work itself. And if you think about play, play is when you're experimenting, you're learning new things. And play is how children learn new things. When you can find both play and purpose in your work, that leads to much higher levels of performance than just having one or the other. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, I used to believe that it was all about purpose. And I found myself working, sitting in the sort of basement conference room of a big nonprofit, analyzing data for weeks on end. And I found that even though I knew the work I was doing was important, I wasn't enjoying the actual day-to-day work that I was doing from nine to five. And as a result, I wasn't as creative as I would have been if I was doing something that actually enjoyed the work itself. So the trick is to find a place where you feel both. And in that example, to go back to those customer service people who improved by over 200%, which is phenomenal, how did the employer introduce the element of play into that uh, transformation of their culture? So it's important to help everybody on a team understand where they're allowed to play. So in this call center, for example, there were a lot of rules and regulations that the call centers had to follow. There's no room for experimentation or innovation in any way. But even though there was all these rules and regulations, each person had the ability to play in how they interacted with each and every customer. So we focused on how do you become, how do you become the best possible at actually building an authentic connection with each customer that you talk to. And people found play in figuring out a way of communicating and connecting with others that really worked for them. Um, They also found play in thinking about once somebody had agreed to do a deal with the call center person, how did they optimize the process so that they could deliver the product as quickly and efficiently as possible? So you found some people found a lot of play in customer interaction, while some people found play in process optimization. And when they could see how their innovation and their hard work actually changed the process or changed their success rates, that created a lot of fun for the team. Mm-hmm. So some of it, it sounds like it's really important to share, you know, if data is the key to uncovering um, better a better understanding of employee motivation, that it's also about sharing data as part of the real-time process with employees so that they feel connected to the process. Yes, that works really well. If you've ever driven a Toyota Prius, for example, and you're driving, you can actually see the little gauge that tells you how much fuel you're using. What you might find is that you start driving up the hill or down a hill, you start to try and optimize it. Humans are natural optimizers. And so the more you can give people the data and the information that lets them self-improve, the more fun they're going to have doing it. Well, that's, that's a wonderful um, kind of concept that data can be a means of engagement, really, is, is what we're talking about here, I think. Exactly. So we have um, play, purpose, 
And there's a third key component that your research uncovered in terms of explaining uh, why people work and which determines how well they work, and that is potential. Can you talk about potential? Yes, and exactly as you said, this, this all goes back to why you work determines how well you work. Your reason for working changes what you do every day. And so play and purpose, which we've talked about, are the most powerful. But potential is when you're doing something for the indirect outcome of the work. And in the workplace, this usually means when you see a job as a stepping stone to something else, it's indirectly going to lead to something that you care about. So, for example, you might take an internship fetching coffee because you want to be a journalist one day, and this is a good stepping stone to get there. Or you become a paralegal because you want to become a lawyer one day. And some big organizations really tap into this potential motive. So, for example, GE is known as a leadership factory. It really helps people accelerate their careers and learn the things that's going to be important to them, not only in their first job, but in their ultimate job as hopefully an executive of an organization one day. Um, if you think about how a lot of people use potential, the potential motive, um, it's really about do this because it will lead to something you care about in the future. So it's, it's a lot about the individual's potential. I'm wondering what is the thinking behind, you know, collective sense of potential that the company is going to succeed and that we're all in this together. Is that still resonating? Yes. If you believe that your company is going to really make a difference in the world, that tends to tap into your purpose motive. And so if you, um, when people see that their, that their company makes a difference and that their job makes a difference, it usually leads to higher levels of performance. So it's a sense of um, your co collective culture as well as me as an individual and what's going to happen with my career at this company. Yes, they both matter. Mm -hmm. We've actually looked at if you just have one or the other, if you just believe in your company but not your job, or you just believe in the impact of your job but not your company, they, just having one of those isn't enough. You've right. got to have both. Right. Well, you cite some really interesting research about how to structure your workforce, which I think probably comes into play here when we talk about collective engagement um, and you know getting away from groups that are too big or the, the, the kind of uh, phone calls that go on forever, the meetings that go on forever. There's some really interesting ideas here about that cite uh, structures like villages or bands or hunting parties to create a better sense of total motivation, what you call total motivation. Can you talk about that research? Yes, there's actually a natural limit to how many people a person can feel close to at any given point in time. And there's a professor from Oxford University called Robin Dunbar who studies this and found that at about 150 people, about the size of a village, uh, organizations begin to break down. For example, you see this 150 number in the, out in the world. It's the size of many hunter-gatherer societies. It's the average size of the smallest independent military units. The average Christmas card list is about 125 people. And companies are beginning to recognize this. So, for example, W.L. Gore, the maker of Gore-Tex, found that once a group got beyond about 150 people, the level of cooperation would start to decline. So whenever a group gets too large, they split it into two smaller groups so that their village is always around 150 or 200 people. That's the level at which you feel close and connected to people. 
Now, there's also research that within that 150, you have to break your group down into smaller teams. And that's where we get to bands and hunting parties. I find hunting parties one of the most interesting, which is at around 15 people, that's about the size where you can actually get together to accomplish a common goal. And so organizations like, for example, Amazon has the two pizza rule, where as soon as your team gets beyond the size that can be fed with two pizzas, it's probably too big. They're not going to be able to organize and cooperate effectively. It's so interesting. So hunting parties in the modern age come down to pizzas, really. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) We're hunting for pizza, but we don't want to get too many. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Well, um, I'm wondering, you know, so many companies, I think, have in their, in their um, striving for uh, ever higher efficiency and motivation, they think about internal competitiveness as, as a key driver, whether it's, you know, department against department, different factions within the company, different product factions. Is that changing in this, con- in this context of engagement and what we're talking about here? It is changing. There are organizations now that are recognizing that when you pit individuals against each other inside the company, they start spending all of their energy fighting internally instead of fighting against the the true competitors. A great story on this topic actually occurred at Microsoft. For the decade leading up to about 2012, their stock price remained stuck below $30, and they missed many of the big trends of that decade. And when a journalist interviewed hundreds of people at Microsoft to see what had happened, they said that every single one of them referred to this concept called stack ranking as one of the most dangerous things that happened in their company. Now, stack ranking is when if 10 people are on a team, those 10 get ranked in their performance reviews, with one being person being the best and the other person being the worst. And no matter if you had 10 Nobel Prize winners on that team, somebody would still be rated the worst, and that would lead to negative consequences. For example, high performers would prevent other high performers from joining their teams in case they got moved down the ranking system. Or people would tell their colleagues just enough to appear helpful, but not share the information that would actually let that person get ahead of them or do better than them. So all of this energy had been focused on internal competition rather than actually uh, the work itself. Now, Microsoft has since ended this stack ranking policy, but these kinds of things end up sucking all of the energy away from the impact you want to have and into internal fighting. Mm -hmm. You want people to be coming to work in order to do the work itself and have an impact, whereas if they're coming to work just to... um, battle their neighbors, the person in the next cube, it's a very different way that they'll behave day to day. Right. It it made me smile when you were talking about, you know, this idea of withholding information as a means of a competitive edge. It reminds me of when they asked Boston drivers, why don't you use your turn signals? And they said, well, we don't want to reveal our strategy. You know, it's this idea that you're, you're not really working with the rules of the road and other people to get somewhere, but you're, <laughs> it just brought that to That's mind. That's really interesting. Yeah. And if the pressure gets tough enough, right, if an individual is under enough pressure to perform, they're going to start taking shortcuts to get to what you want, even to get to the measurable outcome that you're looking for, even if it's not the best thing for the company. So the more pressure you, you put on people, the more dangerous consequences you can get out of it. So imagine, for example, if you're playing your favorite sport, 
whether it's softball or football. And let's say you are playing that sport because you love the game, whereas your competitor is only there for the trophy. The one that is playing because of the trophy is playing because of economic pressure. And it's going to change how that person behaves. They're not going to practice as much. They're not going to spend their weekends reading up about new strategies for the sport. They're not going to um, be as creative or dedicated on the field. And everything else being even, the person that's there because of play, because they actually love the game, is usually going to out to win compared to the person who's only there for the reward of the punishment. Mm-hmm. And that kind of leads into some interesting findings in the book about compensation and this idea that the reward of money will always be a motivator. Um, can you talk about your research and the relationship between money and motivation? Yes, we, we all wish that compensation was the silver, silver bullet, that if you just paid somebody the right amount for the right activity, you would get exactly the type of performance you wanted and you didn't have, wouldn't have to spend any more effort on leadership. It would be nice if compensation worked that way, but unfortunately it doesn't. Um, money itself is not good or bad, but it can change your reason for working and that causes problems. Imagine, for example, we interviewed um, an engineer turned marketer, we'll call him Andrew, who worked for a rapidly growing tech startup. And Andrew went to lots of Ivy League schools. He was a very high performer. And every quarter, he got a bonus if he actually accomplished the tasks that he was supposed to do. So, for example, if he wrote and if he launched a new page on the website or if he um, wrote a new blog post or did a new customer interview, he had to do this list of things in order to get his bonus. But he found that every month and every week and every day, new things would come up that would actually create more value for the company if he did those instead of his original plan. For example, an opportunity to create a partnership with a new company popped up. And he could either go after the new partnership, which would create a lot of value for his company, or stick to his original plan of launching the new page on the website and get his bonus. And instead of focusing on what was right, he was constantly trying to make trade-offs between getting his bonus and doing what was right for the company. It was very, very distracting. And so when you think about compensation, you want to design it so that it really rewards people as they continuously learn and grow and gain in their skills. It's not going to be possible to use compensation to influence what each person is doing every hour and every minute of the day. But if you design it so that people can constantly can be rewarded as they gain in their skills and gain in their abilities, it's, it will be perceived as fair without being distracting, without changing the reason why people are coming to work every day. Mm-hmm. The book also talks about the deadly sins of performance management. Can you talk about some of the key things at the top of that list that uh, employers should avoid? Yes, performance management is one of the most common forms of emotional and economic pressure um, in any organization. When it's performance review time, people are filled with fear. Even if you're a good performer or a great performer, you probably remember the nerves that you feel when you walk into your manager's office to sit down to talk about performance, just in case there's something that you're not expecting is going to come up. And what's amazing is that almost 90% of HR executives say that the performance review systems 
aren't valuable. These are the people that create and administer the systems don't believe that they work very well. Now, a great performance management system would focus on how how to increase play and purpose in each person. Play would be by focusing on what did that person learn and how can I help them learn more faster. Purpose would be what impact did that have and how can I help them have more impact. And performance review systems that focus on those two things rather than using fear or pressure or guilt or shame to motivate tend to have much higher levels of total motivation and performance. Is that the next wave of um, performance management uh, platforms that are out there, or are they readily available? It's something that organizations are just starting to experiment with. So, for example, the Lear Corporation, which is a Fortune 500 company that manufactures aircraft and car parts, stopped linking compensation to performance reviews for all of their employees. They found that the performance reviews were creating a blame-oriented culture which was self-defeating and demoralizing. And so they replaced these high-pressure performance reviews to conversations in which employees discussed how they could learn and grow and improve. Now, there's a common trend to actually move away from all performance review systems altogether, but what we found is that when there's no performance review system, employee motivation is actually low because they believe that important things like promotions or being put on a on a great project, then are coming from favoritism and leader discretion, which is not very motivating. Mm -hmm. But if you have a review system that's actually focused on the impact that you have and the skills that you're learning, leads to the highest levels of motivation. Those are great recommendations. And I'm I'm sure the book also offers some insights on how employers can implement some of these components into their own workforce. So the book really shares a lot about how do you build the systems in your company that are going to change your culture. So culture does not depend on one or two charismatic leaders. It's really about the system that you're in. How do you think about how your organization is designed, how your roles are structured, how your performance reviews and compensation work? All of those things have a big impact on your culture above and beyond any individual personality. We've been speaking with Lindsay McGregor. Lindsay and co-author Neil Doshi have written Prime to Perform, How to Build the Highest Performing Cultures Through the Science of Total Motivation, published by Harper Business. Lindsay, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Connie, for having me. I really appreciate it. We invite you to read an excerpt from Prime to Perform. Go to the Monster Resource Center on hiring.monster.com. That's hiring.monster.com. Click on the Resource Center tab when you get there. Our podcast page also includes a transcript of this conversation, as well as a special offer for Monster Podcast listeners who are looking to find better. I'm Connie Blazik. Thank you so much for listening.